Jesus' most personal and powerful teachings are conversations with his disciples in the book of John. Nowhere else is his instruction both so simple and so deep. Take your place in the upper room to hear the heart of God that still speaks today. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14. You can turn in your Bible or your phone or your tablet or your computer, your iWatch, whatever. I don't leave any device out. Uh, it'll be on the screens as well. I don't care what you look at. Let's just look at the Word together. We're continuing our series this morning in the upper room. Remember, Jesus is with his disciples. He's about to enter the last week of his life, the words he's going to speak, I think, are really important. So let's read, starting at verse 7, John chapter 14. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. This is in response to his statement that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. From now on, you know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you? Such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. Really clear, right? <laughs> I don't know if you're picking up, as we're starting to work through John, his language can be kind of confusing. He uses a lot of the words the same, and we're going to try to unpack that a little bit today. Show us the Father. That's what Philip says. We want to see God. Every morning uh, when I wake up, the first thing that I do is I reach onto my nightstand and stumble for my glasses. Anybody else here can't see, Right? Yeah, you know what it's like. Uh, some people have gotten LASIK, good for them. But I can't see, I wear contacts or glasses all the time. I reach, I stumble over, because if I don't have my glasses on, I can't see. I can't perceive reality as it is. Sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like squinting to like, I see something, I'm like, oh my gosh, what is that? And like, all this stuff's happening, and then I put my glasses on and it's like our TV, <laughs> you know? Like, you just... You, I'm not perceiving reality as it is. Sight matters. If I don't see clearly, I'm not perceiving the world around me the way that it is. See, in general, most of us live our lives by sight. It's kind of foundational for the way that we interact with the world, right? We don't always live by faith. We live by sight. That's why when somebody comes up to you, let's say one of the cadets comes to his friend and says, hey, guess what? You know what? I can slam dunk now. 
what's the first thing you would say? Prove it. Or I don't believe you, but you might say, prove it. Or if somebody comes up to you and says, I got this incredible thing, or I can do this amazing thing that you kind of think, I don't know if that's possible. The first thing you say is, well, show me. I want to see it with my eyes. I'm not going to just take you at your words. I want to see it. Show us the Father, right? And this kind of thinking, right, um, seeing proves reality, right? Or reality is what we can see. The, the fancy word for this is empiricism, right? It's a theory that all knowledge is derived from sense experience. So I have to be able to see if I can get the senses. Taste, smell, see, hear, feel. Feel, thanks, Don, right? If I can't experience the world with one of those senses, then maybe it's not real, right? It becomes important. So facts, data, these things are important. Now, my point is not to say that those aren't important. Those are very important. But we have to recognize that the way that we operate in this world on a daily basis is really built on being able to verify things with our eyes. We see first is what I'm kind of trying to get at. So, we like to talk about the just living by faith, but we often are living by sight, if we're honest. I know that I am. So, as we read this text, and I don't know how you read it, maybe instead of judging Philip as a doubter, as a person of little faith, I can't believe he would say that to Jesus. We should be thankful because Philip has the courage to ask the very thing that we want to ask. Show us the Father. And I'm guaranteeing the other disciples were feeling this too. He's just the only guy who spoke up. So I think we have a lot to learn from Philip because he's asking the question that we're always at tension with, which is, we want to see. We just sing about it. We want to see you. Because we often don't always see things clearly. We want to see God, but we're struggling why is Jesus making such a big deal about this, right? If seeing is natural, it's the way we interact with the world, why would Jesus make such a big deal? And I think really, as we're going to study, the problem is that we just have things a little bit backwards. And like Philip, we're going to need some adjustments, and I think that's what we're going to see. So we're going to focus this morning on the concept of seeing and asking and knowing and how we order those things really really matters according to Jesus and according to John chapter 14. I want to say this, if we really want to see communities renewed through the love of Jesus, which is our vision here, then we would be wise to take seriously Jesus's teachings in regards to seeing, knowing, and asking. So the first thing, seeing, this is verses 7 and 8. If you know me, you will know my Father. From now on you know him and you've seen him. And Philip responds, Lord, just show us the Father. See, how we see Jesus determines our expectations of him. Philip is asking to see the Father. What does he really mean? What is Philip really asking for? Because he, he really commands Jesus. I mean, remember, this is Jesus. This is God. This is like Jesus is the man. And Philip isn't like, Jesus, could you, like, could you show us the Father? That'd be really cool. He doesn't ask it as a question. It's a strong, imperative command. Jesus, show us the Father. And if you do that, it'll be enough. And Jesus responds uh, pretty powerfully to him. See, what I think is happening here is that Philip has an expectation about God that Jesus is not meeting. 
He has an unsaid expectation of who God, of who God is supposed to be, that for whatever reason, Jesus is not meeting those expectations. And if we're honest, I think we have those same things. Because expectations are powerful. Think about this. Think about your friends. Think about your family. If you're married, think about your relationship with your spouse. Expectations become pretty important, right? How many of us have disappointed our spouse before? Yeah, everyone could raise their hand, right? How many have disappointed our friends? Or our brother, our sister, or maybe our dog. I mean, whatever level you're at, right? We all just, expectations are powerful. What's even more powerful is unsaid expectations. When you disappoint someone, you didn't even know that you did it. It's like the worst, you know? We talk, Kayla and I do premarital with, with couples, and this is one of the things we spend the most time with, expectations. Because correct expectations allow you to see things correctly. Expectations that are not true force you to deal with reality not as it is. And ultimately, you end up disappointed. I think Philip and the other disciples are disappointed on some, some level. Now, I want to I say this. This is interesting, right? So at this point in the Gospel of John, John records seven main miracles of Jesus. Every one of those miracles has already happened. They have seen so much. So let me give you a list, and I think it'll be up here as well, of the things that they have seen Jesus do. They've seen Jesus turn water into wine at that first party. He healed the official son. He heals the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He heals the man born blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead. This has all already happened at this point. They've been with Jesus for three years, and yet that is not enough for Philip somehow. I mean, think about this. It's not like they just met Jesus last week. They've been living with this guy for three years. They've been sharing bunk beds or whatever they slept on, you know? They've seen all these amazing things. It's not quite enough. Philip wanted to see something different. So we have to think, what would Philip have wanted to see? Well, Philip is a Jew. They have the Old Testament. Remember, they, they don't have the New Testament like we're reading. So how might they have perceived of God? I want to give you a couple images that I think maybe help us understand what's happening here. In Exodus 13, 21 through 22 we see that God shows up, and I know our kids have been learning about this in CP Kids, as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. That's how, that's what happens in the Exodus. Right? I think I have a picture of this as well, something like this. Right? Are they expecting to see something like this? Fire, cloud, right? It's kind of cool looking, right? Um, Exodus 24, you have that kind of fire on Mount Sinai. You have the mountain shaking. Moses is up there holding the stones or whatever he's doing. They can't even touch the mountain without, like, people dying. It's this kind of otherness of God. It's big. It's majestic. It's power over nature. We sing kind of about this, Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. Isaiah's picture of God on the throne and angels all around or Ezekiel chapter 10, you have a similar picture, but you've got gemstones and seas of glass, and that's a very different picture. Let me say it like this. Jesus is almost like too human. 
That's what they've been reading. And then Jesus is here in the former person. They're like, uh, could, you, could you just show us God? I was expecting like a big fireball, right? Like who doesn't want to see a fireball or a cloud? And Jesus is here in person. And I think we can relate to this, right? I don't think I'm the only one. God does not always show up in the way that you want him to. Right? Just read the Psalms. They're disappointed all the time. The human experiences struggle and doubt. And sometimes God isn't showing up in the way that we expect him to. Even if we've never told him how we expected him to show up. Now, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean that God uh, is letting us down. It doesn't mean that God is wrong. It means that we have a sight issue. We are expecting things of God sometimes that God never promised to us. Right? God didn't promise the disciples that he was going to show up as a really cool fireball from heaven. But that's somewhat what they were expecting, so they're disappointed. See, our knowledge of God, the relation, our relationship with God is not lined up with how we're seeing God, and so things get askew. Our expectations are off, so our concept of Jesus or God becomes off. You guys kind of tracking with me? Things get all kind of mixed up. See, Philip wants to have his expectations met before he believes, and Jesus says, no, 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 Philip, that's backwards. You want to see and then know. I'm telling you, you need to know in order to see. It's backwards. But we live our lives by sight, so this is a hard lesson for us to learn, which leads us to our second point. Knowing. Knowing Jesus refocuses our vision of who Jesus is. This is really verses 9 through 11. And Jesus starts kind of going on. Now, I want to point this out. It's kind of interesting. Jesus says in verse 7, if you know me, you know the Father. And then Philip says, no, we want to see the Father. And Jesus jumps right back to know. Jesus is talking about knowing, and Philip keeps talking about seeing. And Jesus keeps pulling him back. If you know me, you know the Father. And, and Jesus, Jesus is saying, listen, Philip, I've been talking about this the whole time. Right? In John chapter 10, 31, he says, I am the Father. When I've been showing you the Father the whole time. Everything I've been doing was in his name. It's not even me doing it. It's the Father filling me. It's all about the Father. He's trying to teach them to know the Father through him. But they keep thinking about seeing. And this is what's difficult. Knowing is slower than seeing. Right? We can see something quickly. It takes a lot longer to know it. Let me, let me give you an example. I think we know this from our own lives. Um, I met my wife, Kaylin, in June of 2008. I saw her for the first time. It was a good sight. I love her. I saw her. It took me a lot longer to know her. I saw her with my eyes. I perceived something. But 15 years later, because of how much I know her, I now see her more fully. My knowledge of her is allowing me to see her for who she actually is. Knowledge is informing the way that I see. It's supposed to happen that way. And that's really what Jesus is getting at. You need to see the world and see what I'm doing based on how, what you know of me, not the other way around. See, knowing is built on faith, not on works. This is why Jesus references, hey, believe me on accounts of the works. 
But remember, Jesus, Jesus has already done all these crazy things. And they're still struggling with doubt. They're still not seeing things the way that Jesus wants them to see them. Now, maybe you're like me. I've often thought, man, if I could have just been one of the disciples, if I could have just been, how many have thought, I could have just been there with Jesus. If I could have seen him walk on water, seen one of the miracles, then I would never doubt. Because I would have seen it with my eyes. I would have, I would never but Philip, is, they've seen everything. They've lived with Jesus, and they're still doubting. So I guarantee you, if we saw those sin things, we would all doubt still. We'd all struggle. Because it's not really about sight. It's about knowing Jesus. Now, that's encouraging. It should encourage us. We're in the same camp as these disciples. See, there is a place for doubt in faith. They are not mutually exclusive. We sometimes talked about you're either fully living by faith or you're just doubting and it is not that simple and it's not fair. Philip, they, they are with Jesus. They, I think they love Jesus. They care about him. They don't know him totally fully, but this is part of the process. There is a place for struggle in faith. If you are struggling if you ever doubt, you are in good company because the greatest people in church history and in this text are all people who struggled. Your struggles aren't supposed to keep you from God. They're supposed to pull you closer to him. He wants to be with you in those struggles. But Jesus, as a good shepherd, he doesn't want to leave you there. He's not like, well, that's cool. You can struggle, but good luck. <laughs> no, no, he wants to pull you closer he encourages them in the text. He remember all the things I've done. Look at your life. Look back on how God has been with you. Maybe he didn't show up how you expected, but I guarantee you he showed up if you were to look back. And he's reminding them, think about all that we've been through. I and the Father are one. This is why in Colossians chapter 1, it talks about Jesus as the image of the invisible God, that the fullness of God actually dwells in Jesus. He is the manifestation of God. That's the person that they're talking to. But Jesus didn't have to come as a cloud or fire this time. God had already revealed himself this way. Remember, sometimes we look at the text and we're like, well, Jesus, you just need to prove that you're God. That's not what Jesus was doing. God doesn't have to prove himself to anybody. Jesus comes to manifest the love of God. To redeem the world, not to prove, because proving isn't the point. And also, think about this. You can't nail fire and cloud to a cross. You need a human body to do that. God came as a human so that he could redeem the world for every one of us. For Jesus, knowing comes before seeing. When you really know someone, you actually start to see them for who they are. Let me give you an example. One of my favorite, favorite movies growing up and still to this day is the movie Hook. Anybody seen Hook? Come on, cadets, adults, Robin Williams. Oh my gosh, so sad. If you haven't seen it, I, if you haven't seen it, let me give you like the really quick, quick version right what 
you know, it's been out for like 20 years. If you haven't seen it by now, I don't know what to tell you. Just like, you can leave. Whatever. All right, cadets, you guys are fine. Um, man, they are living for Jesus, um, calling me out right in the middle. Um, anyways, I'll try to be not too detailed. Peter Pan, uh, living in Neverland. This is a classic story. Why does he leave Neverland? He meets a girl. <laughs> meets a girl, ditches his friends, comes back, gets married, has kids, forgets about his childhood imagination. Sound familiar? Uh, becomes a middle-aged man who's overweight, <laughs> works too much. I know, right? Uh, and then, whatever, I know it sounds silly. Captain Hook steals his kids, so he ends up back in Neverland as an adult, right? And he's in Neverland, but he doesn't really remember who he is. And everyone's saying, hey, this is Peter Pan. And everyone's like, I'm just seeing an overweight, middle-aged white guy or whatever, right? It doesn't look right. You're saying this, but that's, that's not what I'm seeing. And so what's happening is it's not making sense. And as Robin Williams, as Peter Pan starts to interact with these lost boys and other people, and they start to get to know each other because their sight's not matching up. Your, what I'm seeing isn't matching reality. As he gets to know them, Remember they end up at the table and they're about to eat and he's like, there's no food here. Like this is the lamest dinner ever. And then he like grabs stuff and he like flicks it. You remember that? And it hits the guy in the face, right? As he interacts, as they play together, as they build their knowledge, then there's this powerful scene. There's a picture of it. Uh, this guy, remember this? Oh my gosh, I could cry. This kid grabs his face and he's like squishing it all, you know? And he's like, oh, there you are, Peter. Because his knowledge of him then allows him to see him for who he is. He didn't look like Peter Pan, but as soon as he gets to know him, he sees him for who he is. Our knowledge of God, of Jesus, is supposed to inform the way that we see him. And so Jesus is pleading with Philip and the disciples to think about the time that they've spent together. You know me. You need to adjust your sight. You need to allow your relationship with Jesus to inform the way that you see Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to miss what's going on, which also is why we're going to miss what happens last in this. The last thing is asking. Knowing and seeing Jesus informs us to ask God's will for the world around us. See, knowing and seeing and understanding what, how one informs the other is going to help us understand what is happening in this passage. This passage at the end where it talks about asking is one of the most misunderstood passages I've seen in the Bible. Let me read it. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. They will do. So you're going to do greater works than Jesus. That's crazy. Because Jesus is going to the Father. Verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me, says it again, you may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. Now, anything means anything. There's not like a magic definition for that. It actually means anything. Danny, are you saying that I can ask Jesus for anything? I mean, it says it. I mean, I can't tell you, I like read this as an 18-year-old. They're like, I can ask God for anything? <laughs> really? Um, what is going on here? 
what is Jesus really talking about? I think there's two phrases that are going to help us. The first is this, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what has Jesus been doing this whole time? What has he been doing? He's been doing miracles. He's been healing people, restoring people. He's been preaching the kingdom of God. He's been teaching them. Uh, He's been teaching them the Torah and, and, and talking with a lot of authority. He's been challenging people. Jesus loved to challenge people. He's been calling people to follow him. He's been spending time with people who are kind of on the, on the outskirts of their society, the outcasts. If I were to sum it up, Jesus has been redeeming people. He's been trying to pull people who are out back in, right? We call that word reconciliation. He's been trying to reconnect people to God and to, to community. And I'm just going to Last week, Pastor Don talked about this passage from 2 Corinthians 5, where it talks about uh, that the church has the ministry of reconciliation. Oh, it's up there. Let's just read it. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I think there's more. There we go. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's his ministry. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So the works of Jesus were really the works of reconciliation. And Paul here is saying, guess what? You have the same ministry Christ did. So if you want to continue the works of Christ that John's talking about, this is what it is, to connect people back to God. So this verse cannot be about selfishness. It cannot be about me praying just for things that just I want. This is a prayer that helps redeem other people. That's what he's talking about here. See, Jesus was asking, remember, Jesus is filled with the Father, doing what the Father says. And Jesus is inviting us to do the same thing, to continue that ministry that he was invited to ask for the things that Jesus asked for. And what Jesus asked for, what he prayed for, were things that would help other people, that would help draw people to God. And the second thing that helps us in John 14 is this phrase, so that the Father may be glorified through the Son. This is the why. The whole reason we do everything is so that God would be glorified. Everything Jesus did was to bring glory to his Father. And you know what brings glory to the Father? When the name of his Son is preached. When we know that there's no other way to get to heaven than through Jesus Christ. That brings glory to the Father and is the best thing anybody could ever hear. Jesus is inviting us to ask for anything that will reconcile other people to God, which will ultimately bring glory to the Father. Let me read this. Um, This is a quote from this guy, William Hendrickson. He was a pastor, theologian in our tribe, the Christian Reformed Church, really great writer. He says this, speaking of this verse, prayers, 
things that we're asking for in Christ's name. Only such prayers, however, are answered which are in Christ's name. Such prayers, of course, are not selfish, but in the interest of God's kingdom. They proceed from faith, are in accordance with God's will, ever implying not our will, but thy will be done and to his glory. A prayer in Christ's name is a prayer that is in harmony with whatever Christ has revealed concerning himself. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying for thy will be done. That's the prayer. And I will tell you, that is a prayer that God wants to answer. Is God going to meet all your expectations or mine? No. He's not. But when we pray for things, pray for the things that Jesus prayed for, we can know we are praying God's will. That's a prayer that God is in. See, asking things in Jesus' name is more than just ending our prayers in Jesus' name. Though that's a good thing to do. It's more than that. Because we cannot truly ask for anything in Christ's name without seeing who Christ is. And we can't really see who Christ is without knowing him. Are you starting to see how the knowing and the seeing and the asking are connected? So it's not knowing versus seeing. I'm not, it's not my point today. I'm not asking everyone to like close their eyes and walk out of the church. I'm like, Danny said, don't look at stuff, you know? It's not knowing versus seeing. It's neither knowing plus seeing equals asking. I think that's probably too simple. It's too mathematical. What it is is more of a continuum, and I've got a little thing here. It's circular. It's a continuation of knowing and seeing and asking and knowing and seeing. It's a continuum that we're always in. We always need to know more so that we can see more clearly, so that we know how to pray, how to ask. And because we're humans, we're just going to mess the whole thing up. So we got to keep doing it. We got to keep getting reoriented to God. I don't, it doesn't matter if you're four years old, if you're in sixth grade, if you're my age, if you're older, wherever you're at, this is, this is what Jesus is inviting us into. So that in the city of Chino, we see communities renewed through the love of Jesus. So that we are praying and asking for the things that Jesus wants for this city. Jesus is inviting us into a continual cycle of knowing, seeing, and asking. So, we go back to the beginning of the story with Philip. And we ask Jesus to show us. We stand with Philip. We put ourselves in the story. say, show us the Father. And like Philip, as we interact with Jesus, we begin to realize that we have things backwards. We approach Jesus, we've approached Jesus as the world approaches him by sight. But Jesus redirects our gaze to himself. He reminds us that if one knows him, we know the Father. We've seen the Father at work, we just didn't know it. We might have been looking for the wrong things. In this passage, Jesus intentionally reminds the disciples that knowing precedes seeing in the kingdom of God. And this is so important because ultimately this affects the things that we pray for. The things that we ask for. The things Jesus invites us to ask. There are things Jesus is expecting us to ask him for. That's why he puts it here. So I want to challenge you with this to consider this morning. How is your sight? 
How is your sight? Are you seeing God clearly? Is it based on what you know of him? Everybody, no one here is seeing 2020. I'm telling you that right now. We're all in this together. We all need our sight adjusted. And the way that you do that is you get to know Christ more. One way to get an on, honest answer, because this is difficult, is I want to challenge you to go back to the, an instance in your life where Jesus did not meet your expectation. Think of a moment where God didn't show up in the way you thought and go there. What was happening there? What were you wishing was going to happen? What was off there in your sight? And from there, from that place, you can begin to get to know Jesus and allow him to, to refocus your vision toward him. Or perhaps you're in this place and you've never even met Jesus. You, no one's even told you about the real Jesus. We've been so focused on trying to prove God to you when you can't get proved into the kingdom. Jesus is inviting you today, wherever you're at, to know him. And he wants to know you. His love made him go to the cross for you because he loves you. And this really is what this table is all about, which we're going to come to in a minute. This table is an invitation to know Jesus, to see Jesus, and to learn how to ask for the things of Jesus. This table is part of this cycle that God is inviting us to. Are you struggling? Come to the table. Do you have doubts and fears? Come to the table. This table is where we learn who our Jesus really is. It's where we're invited to know Jesus, to see Jesus, and to learn to pray for the things that Jesus asked us to pray for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you're so gracious to us, that you care for us. That even when we don't see clearly, you don't just cast us aside, but you beckon us forward graciously. In this moment, as we prepare to come to the table, we want to take a minute to ask, how is our sight? Are there things we need to confess to you, Jesus? Are there things where we've just had unsaid expectations. Draw us back to yourself as we come to this family meal to reorient ourselves, to know you, Jesus, to see you and see how you're working in this world and to be partnered with you to go out and pray that the world would be reconciled back to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.